If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 1-3 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapters, Anna and Vronsky were settling back into their normal lives. In these chapters, we catch up some time later with the Shabatskys, where Kitty is still overcome by heartbreak. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 1 At the end of the winter, in the Shabatsky's house, a consultation was being held, which was to pronounce on the state of Kitty's health and the measures to be taken to restore her failing strength. She had been ill, and as spring came on, she grew worse. The family doctor gave her cod liver oil, then iron, then nitrate of silver, but as the first and the second and the third were alike in doing no good, and as his advice when spring came was to go abroad, a celebrated physician was called in. The celebrated physician, a very handsome man, still youngish, asked to examine the patient. He maintained, with peculiar satisfaction it seemed, that maiden modesty is a mere relic of barbarism and that nothing could be more natural than for a man still youngish to handle a girl naked. He thought it natural because he did it every day, and felt and thought, as it seemed to him, no harm as he did it, and consequently he considered modesty in the girl not merely a relic of barbarism, but also an insult to himself. There was nothing for it but to submit, since, although the doctors had studied in the same school, and had read the same books, and learned the same science, and though some people said this celebrated doctor was a bad doctor, in the princess's household and circle, 
it was for some reason accepted that this celebrated doctor alone had some special knowledge, and that he alone could save Kitty. After a careful examination and sounding of the bewildered patient, dazed with shame, the celebrated doctor, having scrupulously washed his hands, was standing in the drawing room talking to the prince. The prince frowned and coughed, listening to the doctor. As a man who has seen something of life and is by no means a fool, he had no faith in medicine and in his heart was furious at the whole farce especially as he was perhaps the only one who fully comprehended the cause of Kitty's illness. Conceited blockhead, he thought, as he listened to the celebrated doctor's chatter about his daughter's symptoms. The doctor was meantime with difficulty restraining the expression of his contempt for this old gentleman, and with difficulty condescending to the level of his intelligence. He perceived that it was no good talking to the old man, and that the principal person in the house was the mother. Before her, he decided to scatter his pearls. At that instant, the princess came into the drawing room with the family doctor. The prince withdrew, trying not to show how ridiculous he thought the performance. The princess was distracted and did not know what to do. She felt she had sinned against Kitty. Well, Doctor, decide our fate, said the princess. Tell me everything. Is there hope? She meant to say, but her lips quivered and she could not utter the question. Well, Doctor? Immediately, Princess. I will talk it over with my colleagues and then I will have the honour of laying my opinion before you so we had better leave you. As you please. The princess went out with a sigh. When the doctors were left alone, the family doctor began timidly explaining his opinion that there was a commencement of tuberculous trouble, but, and so on. The celebrated doctor listened to him, and in the middle of his sentence looked at his big gold watch. Yes, said he, but the family doctor respectfully ceased in the middle of his sentence. The commencement of the tuberculous process we are not, as you are aware, able to define. Till there are cavities, there is nothing definite. But we may suspect it, and there are indications, malnutrition, nervous excitability, and so on. The question stands thus. In presence of indications of tuberculous process, what is to be done to maintain nutrition? But you know, there are always moral, spiritual causes at the back of these cases. The family doctor permitted himself to interpolate with a subtle smile. Yes, that's an understood thing, responded the celebrated physician, again glancing at his watch. Beg pardon, is the Yorsky Bridge done yet, or shall I have to drive around? He asked. Ah, it is. Oh, well, then I can do it in twenty minutes. So, we were saying the problem may be put thus. To maintain nutrition and to give tone to the nerves, 
The one is in close connection with the other. One must attack both sides at once. And how about a tour abroad? asked the family doctor. I've no liking for foreign tours, and take note, if there is an early stage of tuberculous process of which we cannot be certain, a foreign tour will be of no use. What is wanted is a means of improving nutrition and not for lowering it. And the celebrated doctor expounded his plan of treatment with sodden waters, a remedy obviously prescribed primarily on the grounds that it could do no harm. The family doctor listened attentively and respectfully. But in favor of foreign travel, I would urge the change of habits, the removal from conditions calling up remnants. And then the mother wishes it, he added. Ah, well, in that case, to be sure, let them go. Only, those German quacks are mischievous. They ought to be persuaded. Well, let them go then. He glanced once more at his watch. Oh, time's up already, and he went to the door. The celebrated doctor announced to the princess, a feeling of what was due from him dictated his doing so, that he ought to see the patients once more. What? Another examination? cried the mother with horror. Oh no, only a few details, princess. Come this way. And the mother, accompanied by the doctor, went into the drawing room to Kitty. Wasted and flushed, with a peculiar glitter in her eyes, left there by the agony of shame she had been put through, Kitty stood in the middle of the room. When the doctor came in, she flushed crimson, and her eyes filled with tears. All her illness and treatment struck her as a thing so stupid, ludicrous even. Doctoring her seemed to her as absurd as putting together the pieces of a broken vase. Her heart was broken. Why would they try to cure her with pills and powders? But she could not grieve her mother, especially as her mother considered herself to blame. May I trouble you to sit down, princess? The celebrated doctor said to her. He sat down with a smile, facing her, felt her pulse, and again began asking her tiresome questions. She answered him, and all at once got up, furious. Excuse me, doctor, but there really is no object to this. This is the third time you've asked me the same thing. The celebrated doctor did not take offense. Nervous irritability, he said to the princess when Kitty had left the room. However, I had finished, and the doctor began scientifically explaining to the princess, as an exceptionally intelligent woman, the condition of the young princess, and concluded by insisting on the drinking of the waters, which were certainly harmless. At the question, should they go abroad? The doctor plunged into deep meditation, as though resolving a weighty problem. Finally, his decision was pronounced. They were to go abroad, but to have no faith in foreign quacks, 
and to apply to him in any need. It seemed as though some piece of good fortune had come past after the doctor had gone. The mother was much more cheerful when she went back to her daughter, and Kitty pretended to be more cheerful. She had often, almost always, to be pretending now. Really, I'm quite well, Mama, but if you want to go abroad, let's go, she said, and trying to appear interested in the proposed tour, she began talking of the preparations for the journey. Chapter 2 Soon after the doctor, Dolly had arrived. She knew that there was to be a consultation that day, and though she was only just up after her confinement, she had another baby, a little girl, born at the end of the winter. Though she had trouble and anxiety of her own, she had left her tiny baby and a sick child to come and hear Kitty's fate, which was to be decided that day. Well, well, she said, coming into the drawing room without taking off her hat. You're all in good spirits. Good news, then. They tried to tell her what the doctor had said, but it appeared that though the doctor had talked distinctly enough and at great length, it was utterly impossible to report what he had said. The only point of interest was that it was settled that they should go abroad. Dolly could not help sighing. Her dearest friend, her sister, was going away, and her life was not a cheerful one. Her relations with Stepan Arkadyevich after their reconciliation had been humiliating. The union Anna had cemented turned out to be of no solid character, and family harmony was breaking down again at the same point. There had been nothing definite, but Stepan Arkadyevich was hardly ever home. Money too was hardly ever forthcoming, and Dolly was continually tortured by suspicions of infidelity, which she tried to dismiss, dreading the agonies of jealousy she had been through already. The first onslaught of jealousy, once lived through, could never come back again, and even the discovery of infidelities could never now affect her as it had affected her the first time. Such a discovery now would only mean breaking up family habits, and she had let herself be deceived, despising him, and still more herself, for the weakness. Besides this, the care of her large family was a constant worry to her. First, the nursing of her young babies did not go well. Then the nurse had gone away. Now one of her children had fallen ill. Well, how are you all? asked her mother. Ah, Mama, we have plenty of troubles of our own. Lily is ill, and I'm afraid it's Scarlatina. I've come here now to hear about Kitty, and then I shall shut myself up entirely, if, God forbid, it should be Scarlatina. The old prince too had come in from his study after the doctor's departure, and after presenting his cheek to Dolly, and saying a few words to her, he turned to his wife. How have you settled it? You're going. Well, and what do you mean to do with me? I suppose you had better stay here, Alexander, said his wife. That's as you like. Mama, 
Why shouldn't father come with us? said Kitty. It would be nicer for him and for us too. The old prince got up and stroked Kitty's hair. She lifted her head and looked at him with a forced smile. It always seemed to her that he had understood her better than anyone else in the family, though he did not say much about her. Being the youngest, she was her father's favourite, and she fancied that his love gave him insight. When now her glance met his blue, kindly eyes looking intently at her, it seemed to her that he saw right through her and understood all that was not good that was going past her mind. Reddening, she stretched out towards him, expecting a kiss, but he only patted her hair and said, These stupid chignons, there's no getting to the real daughter. One simply strokes the bristles of dead women. Well, Dalinka, he turned to his eldest daughter, what's your young buck about, eh? Nothing, father, answered Dolly, understanding that her husband was meant. He's always out. I scarcely ever see him, she could not resist adding with a sarcastic smile. Why hasn't he gone into the country yet? to see about selling that forest. No, he's still getting ready for the journey. Oh, that's it, said the prince, and so am I to be getting ready for a journey too. At your service, he said to his wife, sitting down. And I tell you what, Katya, he went on to his younger daughter, you must wake up one fine day and say to yourself, why? I'm quite well and merry, and going out again with father for an early morning walk in the frost, eh? What her father said seemed simple enough, yet at these words, Kitty became confused and overcome like a detected criminal. Yes, he sees it all, he understands it all, and in these words he tells me that though I am ashamed, I must get over my shame. She could not pluck up the spirit to make an answer. She turned to begin, and all at once burst into tears and rushed out of the room. See what comes of your jokes, the princess pounced down on her husband. You're always... She began a string of reproaches. The prince listened to the princess's scolding rather a long while without speaking but his face grew more and more frowning. She's so much to be pitied, poor child, so much to be pitied, and you don't feel how it hurts her to hear the slightest reference to the cause of it. Ah, to be so mistaken in people, said the princess, and by the change in her tone, both Dolly and the prince knew she was speaking of Fronsky. I don't know why there aren't laws against such base, dishonourable people. Ah, I can't bear to hear you, said the prince gloomily, getting up from his low chair and seeming anxious to get away, yet stopping in the doorway. There are laws, madame, and since you've challenged me to it, I'll tell you who's to blame for it all. You and you. You and nobody else. Laws against such young gallants there have been always, and there still are. Yes, 
if there has been nothing that ought not to have been, old as I am, I'd have called him out to the barrier, the young dandy. Yes, and now you physique her and call in these quacks. The prince apparently had plenty more to say, but as soon as the princess heard his tone, she subsided at once and became penitent, as she always did on serious occasions. Alexander, Alexander, she whispered, moving to him and beginning to weep. As soon as she began to cry, the prince too calmed down. He went up to her. There, that's enough, that's enough. You're wretched too, I know. It can't be helped. There's no great harm done. God is merciful. Thanks, he said, not knowing what he was saying as he responded to the tearful kiss of the princess that he felt on his hand, and the prince went out of the room. Before this, as soon as Kitty went out of the room in tears, Dolly, with her motherly family instincts, had promptly perceived that here a woman's work lay before her, and she prepared to do it. She took off her hat and, morally speaking, tucked up her sleeves and prepared for action. While her mother was attacking her father, she tried to restrain her mother, so far as filial reverence would allow. During the princess's outburst, she was silent. She felt ashamed for her mother and tended towards her father for so quickly being kind again. But when her father left them, she made ready for what was the chief thing needful, to go to Kitty and console her. I've been meaning to tell you something for a long while, Mama. Did you know that Levin meant to make Kitty an offer when he was here the last time? He told Steva so. Well, what then? I don't understand. So did Kitty perhaps refuse him? She didn't tell you so. No. She has said nothing to me either of one or the other. She's too proud. But I know it's all on account of the other. Yes, but suppose she has refused Levin, and she wouldn't have refused him if it hadn't been for the other. I know. And then, he has deceived her so horribly. It was too terrible for the princess to think how she had sinned against her daughter and she broke out angrily. Oh, I really don't understand. Nowadays they will all go their own way, and mothers haven't a word to say in anything, and then… Mama, I'll go up to her. Well, do. Did I tell you not to? said her mother. Chapter 3 when she went into Kitty's little room, a pretty, pink little room, full of knick-knacks in faux sacks, as fresh and pink and white and happy as Kitty herself had been two months ago, Dolly remembered how they had decorated the room the year before together, with what love and gaiety. Her heart turned cold when she saw Kitty sitting on a low chair near the door her eyes fixed immovably on a corner of the rug. Kitty glanced at her sister, and the cold, rather ill-tempered expression of her face did not change. 
I'm just going now, and I shall have to keep in, and you won't be able to come and see me, said Dolly, sitting down beside her. I want to talk to you. What about? Kitty asked swiftly, lifting her head in dismay. What should it be but your troubles? I have no troubles. Nonsense, Kitty. Do you suppose I could help knowing? I know all about it, and believe me, it's of little consequence. We've all been through it. Kitty did not speak, and her face had a stern expression. He's not worth your grieving over him, pursued Daria Alexandrovna, coming straight to the point. No, because he has treated me with contempt, said Kitty, in a breaking voice. Don't talk of it, please, don't talk of it. But who could have told you so? No one said that. I'm certain he was in love with you, and would still be in love with you, if it hadn't. Oh, the most awful thing of all for me is this sympathizing, shrieked Kitty, suddenly flying into a passion. She turned around on her chair, flushed crimson, and rapidly moved her fingers, pinching the clasp of her belt first with one hand and then with the other. Dolly knew this trick of her sister's, of clenching her hands when she was much excited. She knew, too, that in moments of excitement, Kitty was capable of forgetting herself and saying a great deal too much, and Dolly would have soothed her, but it was too late. What? What is it you want from me, eh? said Kitty quickly. Do you want me to feel that I've been in love with a man who didn't care a straw for me, and that I'm dying of love for him? And this is said to me by my own sister, who imagines that, that, that she's sympathizing with me. I don't want these condolences and humbug. Kitty, you're unjust. Why are you tormenting me? But I, quite the contrary, I see you're unhappy. But Kitty, in her fury, did not hear her. I've nothing to grieve over and be comforted about. I'm too proud ever to allow myself to care for a man who does not love me. Yes, I don't say so either. Only one thing. Tell me the truth, said Daria Alexandrovna, taking her by the hand. Tell me, did Levin speak to you? The mention of Levin's name seemed to deprive Kitty of the last vestige of self-control. She leaped up from her chair, and flinging her clasp on the ground, she gesticulated rapidly with her hands and said, Why bring Levin into it? I can't understand what you want to torment me for. I've told you, and I say it again, that I have some pride, and never, never would I do as you're doing. Go back to a man who's deceived you, who's cared for another woman. I can't understand it. You may, but I can't. And saying these words, she glanced at her sister, and seeing that Dolly sat in silence, her head mournfully bowed. Kitty, instead of running out of the room as she meant to do, sat down near the door and hid her face in her handkerchief. 
The silence lasted for two minutes. Dolly was thinking of herself. That humiliation of which she was always conscious came back to her with a peculiar bitterness when her sister reminded her of it. She had not looked for such cruelty in her sister, and she was angry with her. But suddenly, she heard the rustle of a skirt, and with it sounds of heart-rendering, smothered sobbing, and felt arms about her neck. Kitty was on her knees before her. Delinka, I am so, so wretched, she whispered penitently, and the sweet face covered with tears hid itself in Daria Alexandrovna's skirt. As though tears were the indispensable oil without which the machinery of mutual confidence could not run smoothly between the two sisters, the sisters, after their tears, talked not of what was uppermost in their minds, but, though they talked of outside matters, they understood each other. Kitty knew that the words she had uttered in anger about her husband's infidelity and her humiliating position had cut her poor sister to the heart, but that she had forgiven her. Dolly, for her part, knew all she had wanted to find out. She felt certain that her surmises were correct, that Kitty's misery, her inconsolable misery, was due precisely to the fact that Levin had made her an offer and she had refused him, and Vronsky had deceived her, and that she was fully prepared to love Levin and to detest Vronsky. Kitty said not a word of that. She talked of nothing but her spiritual condition. I have nothing to make me miserable, she said, getting calmer. But can you understand that everything has become hateful, loathsome, coarse to me, and I myself most of all? You can't imagine what loathsome thoughts I have about everything. Why, whatever loathsome thoughts can you have? asked Dolly, smiling. The most utterly loathsome and coarse, I can't tell you. It's not unhappiness or low spirits but much worse, as though everything that was good in me was all hidden away, and nothing was left but the most loathsome. Come, how can I tell you, she went on, seeing the puzzled look in her sister's eyes. Father began saying something to me just now. It seems to me he thinks all I want is to be married. Mother takes me to a ball. It seems to me she only takes me to get me married off as soon as may be and be rid of me. I know it's not the truth, but I can't drive away such thoughts. Eligible suitors, as they call them. I can't bear to see them. It seems to me they're taking stock of me and summing me up. In old days, to go anywhere in a ball dress was a simple joy to me. I admired myself. Now I feel ashamed and awkward. And then, the doctor. Then, Kitty hesitated. She wanted to say further, but ever since this change had taken place in her, Stepan Arkadyevich had become insufferably repulsive to her, and that she could not see him without the grossest and most hideous conceptions rising before her imagination. Oh well. 
Everything presents itself to me in the coarsest, most loathsome light, she went on. That's my illness. Perhaps it will pass off. But you mustn't think about it. I can't help it. I'm never happy except with the children at your house. What a pity you can't be with me. Oh, yes, I'm coming. I've had Scarlatina, and I'll persuade Mama to let me. Kitty insisted on having her way, and went to stay at her sister's and nursed the children all through the Scarlatina, for Scarlatina it was indeed. The two sisters brought all six children successfully through it, but Kitty was no better in health, and in Lent the Shabatskis went abroad.